Welcome to the StoryCraft Cafe. Come in, grab a cup of your favorite beverage, and get ready to join the storytelling conversation. StoryCraft Cafe is brought to you by Dabble, the ultimate cloud-based fiction writing software. Here we're going to bring together storytellers from all walks to encourage and empower you to craft your best story. Hello everyone, my name is Grace and I am the cafe manager over here at the StoryCraft Cafe. I'm here to personally invite you to come check out the StoryCraft Cafe if you haven't already been by. There is so much happening in the cafe this month. We are running live events with authors, doing group writing sprints, and talking a lot about the ins and outs of writing, the joys and the woes. If this sounds like fun, stop by for a cozy digital beverage at storycraft.cafe. That's S-T-O-R-Y-C-R-A-F-T dot C-A-F-E. I can't wait to see you all there. Welcome to another week in the StoryCraft Cafe. Boy, do we have a fantastic show for you today with author Hannah Mary McKinnon. Before we talk to Hannah, though, let's hear from Lou Diamond Phillips about why genre fiction is so important. Be sure to join us at storycraft.cafe and click on the upcoming events tab and look for a live event that you can join in on. All coming up in the month of June, we're going to be tackling character development. Lots of great stuff going on there at storycraft.cafe. Now let's hear from Lou. Today's sci-fi, and you look at something like Stargate Universe, which, you know, uh, had, um, uh, what was that wonderful, it was before Outlander, uh, Outlander, the wonderful Sean Connery, uh, you know, high oh, noon yeah. sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, remember? That was, oh, yeah. was pretty much high noon in space, you know? So yeah. sci-fi is, is the modern day Western to a certain extent. And, uh, you know, even if it's, you know, Mad Max or, you know, that, that, that entire, you know, Fury uh, Road kind of futuristic steampunk uh, aspect and that and that influenced uh, Yvonne's drawings as well. But the American Western modern sci-fi really to me boil down to they're, they're the morality tales. They are the fables. Uh, they allow us to discuss uh, in, in a very, you know, uh, non-mundane setting, um, uh, even a fantastical setting, the, the great questions of human character and human existence. You know, what is bravery? What is courage? What is sacrifice? What is nobility? Uh, and and um, when you elevate all of those to the level of, you know, royalty, of kings and queens and princesses, of soldiers, all of that, then I think that takes the reader to a place where where you can discuss these very, very important, you know, aspects of, of humanity that have existed, you know, since the beginning of art, since the beginning of writing. Uh, and, and we're in a time right now or personally, I think we need to reflect on character. We need to reflect on integrity and and what is right and what is wrong. And uh, you know, uh, um, you can go back to, to you know, Aesop's fables and go, okay, that's the, that's the simplistic version of it. But you know, there there is some of that DNA in this as well. Today, I'm super excited to have one of my all-time favorite authors. Uh, my friend, Hannah Mary McKinnon, uh, always a pleasure to catch up with you, uh, Hannah, and your new book, Never Coming Home, is absolutely stunning. I know everyone's going to love this book. I know I did. And uh, yeah, welcome to the show. 
Thank you. Thank you for the lovely introduction. That's uh, that's so kind of you, Hank. Thank you for well, having me. Well, absolutely. I, I look forward to chatting uh, every time you've got a new book out. And uh, how many books is this for you now? What What is this, Never Coming Home? This is book six. Book six. Well, yes. Does it... Uh, does it get easier, you know, when you when you've got six books, your sixth book coming out, you know, as opposed to that first one, you know, it's it's familiar territory for sure, but yes. you know, every book's different and every launch is different, isn't it? That's true. I mean, this is the the third uh, the third of my books um, that has launched during the pandemic, or I mean, it's less prevalent perhaps now in, in certain areas. Um, but it's less daunting from that sense. I mean, two years ago, it was it was very scary launching a book in the pandemic and just the pandemic itself, of course. Right. So, it, yeah, it's 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 equally as exciting and nerve wracking, but it is familiar territory. So I know what to expect in certain ways and not at yeah. all in others. You never know how the book's going to land. I mean, that you that you never know until it's out in the wild. So that part's always a bit scary. Well, I I didn't plan to talk about the pandemic, but since you brought it up, I, I do think <laughs> it's uh, it, it's worth talking about for just a minute. Um, the you know, th there are kind of two aspects to it. Um, one is the writing of the book during a pandemic, and mm -hmm. and you know, which has been kind of weird for everybody because mm -hmm. as writers, we tend to work at home a lot of times and in a in an office by ourselves and. Um, you know, kind of uh, lonesome work is, is familiar to us, but there's something weird that happens when, you know, the rest of the world is working from home as well. And, uh, you know, it's it's a it, it's a um, it's a mental challenge to a lot of people that have you experienced any of that? I did. At the, honestly, in the, at the very beginning, when when COVID arrived in Canada, so to speak, or when we went into our first lockdown in the middle of March 2020, that was when I found it really, really difficult. I kept watching the news incessantly, trying to because looking towards Europe predominantly because that was almost like our crystal ball. What's going to be happening in two weeks here? Well, look to Europe and you'll see. So, and I have family here, so in Europe, so it was it was very daunting and scary. And in the end, I actually had to shut off the news because I wasn't getting anything done. So I limited myself to say half an hour a day, and that was my lot. And I was actually really productive. So never coming home while this is the third release during the COVID years, <laughs> um, as I shall now refer to it, the COVID years, it's it's actually the, the first book that I wrote entirely during the pandemic. So I wrote, the, I plotted the book, wrote the book and edited the book between 2020 middle of 2020 and, and early 2021 and out of all of my books so far this is the weird thing it was the smoothest to write not the easiest because writing books isn't easy and I, I wouldn't want anyone to think that it is <laughs> but it was the smoothest it was the one that that seemed to just flow and I remember saying to my husband Rob I said to him you know it's going really well and the shoe's going to drop and everything's going to fall apart. And I kept expected, expecting that to happen and it didn't. <laughs> so maybe that was, I don't know, the universal karma or whatever, um, saying, <laughs> you know, it's been a crappy time. We'll give you this one, but don't expect it for the next 10. 
<laughs> well, I'm I'm so happy that it was a, a smooth experience for you, and and I definitely want to kind of dig into to some of your process in a minute. But, um, you know, the other side of of the book business is, you know, you first you have to write a book, but then you have to sell that book. Yes. Um, what has been your experience, uh, you know, during the pandemic? with selling books because, uh, you know, it, the book industry has, has been interesting, uh, because we've, we've seen, well, one, you know, bookstores, uh, you know, shutting down you, during lockdowns and things like that, but we've been able to order books online and there've been some shipping issues and things like that. And, and there have been some supply is supply chain issues with, with printed, you know, bound books. Uh, but eBooks and audiobooks have fared, fairly well during yes. this um what what has been your experience and and what have you noticed uh you know in the with the shifting sands of the publishing industry i think um if i take my the, the first book that came out at the beginning of the pandemic so that will be sister dear in 2020 yeah that one i think has stronger ebook sales like you said i think i think that's probably one of the strongest ones uh, and probably because the stores were closed, I think that was definitely a big factor. Um, honestly, it's my publishers, HarperCollins, and they are the ones who do all of the heavy lifting in terms of distribution and, and getting the book into all of the different sales channels in all of the different formats. And I really can't fault them. I know they've done an extraordinary amount of work to, to get the book out there. What I did see very early on, um, of which I was also a, a very active participant, was shifting promotional events online. So very, very early on in COVID, because I was already comfortable and reasonably well-versed in, in the tech required to go online, I was very quickly participating in online events. And those have continued. And I hope that they will continue because in terms of audience reach and geography yes there are technical limitations of course your audience still needs to have the tech to get online but if you take that out of the equation just for a second if you go online you have a much broader reach um, and it's very convenient so i'm certainly planning on continuing with online events even once the covid years are over because i think you you reach so many people who, sure, you can do in-person events, but then geography <laughs> right. and, and physical limitations perhaps will, will prevent people from coming. So it's lovely. I think it's lovely. I mean, obviously, the pandemic has been horrific and horrible. But if there is a silver lining somewhere to be found, yeah, it's one of them is the fact that many, many people took this technological leap at the same time. Right. So we've learned, many of us have learned, okay, so this is Zoom. How does that work? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, or StreamYard or whatever it may be. Right. So it, I can't say it's a level playing field because, again, it depends on the person. It depends on their circumstance. It depends on their access to tech and their ability to use it, of course. But it has brought many people together, I think, through technology. I mean, if you think about the pandemic, if this had happened gosh, even 20 years ago or 30 years ago, there wouldn't have been the abundance of online content that we had now. So I've been very thankful that I've been able to, to play a part in that and hopefully provide people some entertainment and light relief through the online events I've done. 
Right. Well, and and hopefully, you know, when we're fully on the other side of this thing and life gets back to, you know, um, as as normal as life's going to get back to, maybe yeah. we can, uh, you know, uh, embrace the the live in person appearances and and also the the online appearances where you yes. can still reach many people but yes. you know there's 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 just no no substitute for handshakes and hugs that's and right signed yeah. books you know when when yes. you're able to do that for sure agreed yeah. yeah maybe there'll be a hybrid you know maybe there'll be i can imagine i think they're already doing them events where they have in person with an online streaming component which is which is fabulous right absolutely um and and another thing that that you've, I guess you guys have been doing it for for a couple of years now. You and uh, Hank Philippi Ryan, uh, another one of my favorite authors, uh, do first chapter fun, uh, yes. which is a, a fantastic show that you guys do. And I pop in all the time on Instagram and 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 lurk a bit there and and listen <laughs> to what you guys are doing. I love it so much. Um, but what? Uh, how has? Um, you know, th- th- there's something that happens when when you talk to other people, um, you know, about the craft and it it's energizes you in a way. And, that you know, that's one reason we do this podcast is because there's no substitute for talking with other people that are in the trenches and doing the work. And, uh, you know, sometimes you you you. Uh, you know, glean a, a a bit of knowledge that you know that you can file away in your toolkit, and sometimes it's just the motivation or the the inspiration. Uh, how has doing that show affected your creative life as a writer? Oh gosh, first chapter fun. So that was a that was an off the cuff thing that that started two years ago in in March of 2020 um, when I suggested to a group of author friends that I read the first chapter of their book on Instagram and Facebook Live because we were all scrambling because all <laughs> of our events were being cancelled. And I I thought, you know, a few people would would accept <laughs> for me to do that. And it turned into 50. And then Hank came along and she said, how about we partner up and, and read twice a week instead of every day? Because every day was a bit much to do on an ongoing basis. And it just took off from then and and it's been two years. And it's been, first of all, when I first when I first started it, it was to help give fellow authors content and promote their books. But it was also selfishly for me to get my head out of the pandemic, <laughs> to be <laughs> honest, because I was obsessing about it and it and it was a brilliant distraction because I just didn't have time anymore. You know, that half an hour even that I had limited myself to, I don't even think I used that anymore. Um, so it was fantastic from that point of view. And in terms of on Facebook certainly, but also on Instagram of building this community, because that's really what it's turned into, that the the first chapter fun family with the first chapter funsters, um, where people are are regularly tuning in and commenting and we're greeting people by their names. And it, it's just become this lovely half an hour bubble uh, twice a week, Tuesday, Thursday, 12.30 p.m. Eastern time, where we get together. It's not in person. It is online. We can't see one another. That's true. But it's just become this lovely um, almost like a safe haven, really, where we just talk about books. The plague does not get mentioned very often. <laughs> Sometimes it slips in, but but not often. It was designated to be a plague-free zone. Um, and 
the connections I've made within the writing community, whether it's people who are watching readers or authors or their, their publishers, their publicists, their agents perhaps, it's just been absolutely lovely to be able to pay it forward, to be able to give back to this community, the writing community and reading community that are both so incredibly generous. So it's been it's been a lovely experience. Plus, I get to read first chapters and hear first chapters when Hank, Hank reads them all the time, which has also made me very aware of the importance of really nailing that first chapter. <laughs> so it's been very helpful for that, too. It's uh, th there really is no substitute for a great first chapter. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, it's it's so funny. I was talking with with Terry Brooks, uh, the, the fantasy author, um, a little while ago, and we were talking about how um, just writing and publishing has changed over the decades. And, and he said when he wrote the first Shannara books in the 1970s that the uh, you know, you could get away with having a story that that built for, you know, eight or 10 chapters. And when you look back, not a whole lot really happens. It's, it's kind of, <laughs> you know, building up to a, to an inciting incident. And now you really have to hit the ground running and, yes. you know, you need to pull the reader in, in chapter one. Um, what have you learned about writing just from, from seeing the way other people have done it? Have, have you picked up anything that you, you know, have filed away in your writer toolkit? I think it's exactly that. I think it's it's basically that if there's if there's any information that isn't really necessary in the first chapter, um, take it out <laughs> and, and make sure that at the end of the first chapter, something happens already. Traditionally in thrillers, certainly when when I first came to writing thrillers a number of years ago, the thinking and it still is that something big needs to happen at around about page 50. But I think equally so, something needs to happen in the first chapter, at the end of the first chapter, where where the reader asks themselves, oh, my, what happens next and wants to turn the page. So and I think also already in the first on the first page, you need to have something that hooks the reader's interest because sometimes with Twitter you get what, 280 characters, right. uh, which is not even a page, not even a paragraph. So you have to really, really hook the reader right from the beginning, page one, end of chapter one, and then moving forward. Um, certainly with thrillers, with my thrillers, I always try and have a, a mini cliffhanger at the end of each chapter. For example, somebody arriving somewhere or discovering somewhere or finding, perhaps finding the answer to a question, but which begs another question. So lots of those those techniques where it's not just the flat ending of a chapter because you basically want to eliminate any reader, any reason the reader might have to put the book down. Right. <laughs> right. So it's been very, very helpful, certainly seeing all of these first chapters, definitely. Yeah. Um, your books, Never Coming Home is, is book six uh, that you've published, as you mentioned. Um, where do you... Uh, see yourself uh, in the in the publishing landscape and, and genre wise, you know, there we have we have a bunch of genres and then under those genres, we have sub genres. And, mm -hmm. uh, and, and, you know, I, and I think those are important for for selling books. You know, you need to know what 
part of the bookstore to send one to send someone to if they're looking for a particular kind of story. Um, but but most people that I've met don't really think in those black and white terms of, you know, I'm writing a domestic suspense thriller and I know that I have to have this element, this element, this element and and certain tropes. And, you know, it you you know, if you if you start looking at the way the publishing industry lays out, you get the impression that that writers have a checklist of things that they go down. And, and, and that's just not the case for most people. But but their their writing does tend to, you know, kind of fall into certain categories. And that, you know, that kind of determines where we sell your book. But if if someone had never read one of your books, how would you describe the kinds of stories that you tell? I would say it's in the crime fiction bucket, <laughs> which is a, which is an awfully big bucket, but yeah. crime fiction, and it's predominantly stories about families and relationships within messed up relationships <laughs> within yeah. those families. So I don't I don't write police procedurals um, or private detectives, for example. I don't write cozy mysteries either so it really would be yes it's general crime fiction where stuff where you take ordinary people and put them in extraordinary circumstances and then turn up the pressure that's what i write about it's 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 people focused it's rather than i don't write gore the the my books yeah. aren't gory um so they're not they're not say hard boiled noir or anything like that, but it's it's really about families um, or relationships, husband wife, as in never coming home, could be father son uh, in her secret son or sisters and sister dear, um, and that's what I like to write about is everyday people, but in extraordinary circumstances, and then and then and then making making stuff go really wrong for them. Oops, <laughs> they're not real though. People, nobody gets hurt. It's all good. It's, <laughs> they show up every day for work unharmed. I promise. <laughs> <laughs> so I I know that you uh, from our conversations in the past you are a a plotter, mm-hmm. um, and I think you even mentioned earlier that uh, you know writing during the pandemic that you you plotted this book and then yes. drafted and edited all during the pandemic. Um, when since you, have you always been a, a plotter or did you uh, kind of grow into that as as you became a professional? writer i'd say a a always a plotter but the more i write the more i've refined the process that works for me so to be honest when i when i outlined my first book the rom-com um i didn't know what i was doing i had no clue i just thought well i better figure out what this story is going to be kind of a chapter by chapter thing i don't even I don't even know if I knew what an outline was, to be honest. I just I just I knew nothing about the craft. I just went for it, which is perhaps not the right way to to do it. But it it worked out in the end. Um, But now I really have a a process that serves me really well, because when I was first writing, I didn't have any deadlines. So I could take as much time as I pleased, really, because nobody was expecting anything. But now I have deadlines. And I'm never just working on one book. So right now I'm in the midst of um, Never Coming Home, about to come out and promoting that. And I'm writing 
uh, so I'm editing the book for 2023, writing another one for 2023, and about to embark on the plot for 2024. And sometimes I might have a book club. A couple of weeks ago, I had a book club for last year's book. <laughs> wow. So I'm I'm never just focused on on yes at a time. I'm focused on one book at a time, of course, when I'm working. But during the week, it might be on multiple books depending on the stage that I'm at with each of them. So I have to be. Uh, for me, I need to be quite meticulous in my in my plotting. Not to say that I'm married to the plot. I always I, I'm always open to my characters leading me elsewhere. My subconscious that would be uh, taking me to a different ending or down a different avenue. Uh, but I do I do need to plot it so I at least have the sense that I know where I'm going. Whether I'll end up where I thought I would end up that depends on the book. I did with Never Coming Home. I did with the one for next year. Um, I didn't necessarily for you will remember me last year's book. So it just it just depends. But definitely a plotter. And the more I write, the more I plot. I, I think the most people that that uh, plotting kind of scares them is that um, they I think they feel like that once you plot it out, when you outline it, that you are married to that outline mm-hmm. and that you have yes, to, I've heard that. Mm-hmm. yeah. And, and I think that's one of the big misconceptions. Uh, but do you treat your outline, uh, as sort of a living outline? And, and so if a, if a moment of inspiration comes when you're writing chapter four and, and a character takes an unexpected turn that you didn't think was going to happen and you, and you start thinking, well, this is going to, uh, you know, thinking about the fallout from that. Well, this is going to affect, you know, how this character responds, and uh, and then, you know, all of the implications of that. Then, do you, uh, how much editing does your outline go through during the drafting process? Would you think? I do edit it sometimes. So there have been cases where I, I've changed something early on, where I thought that the plot that I'd written was the bee's knees, and it was going to all work out, and then I start <laughs> writing it, and I think, oh actually maybe in chapter four this needs to happen but then i'd have to go back and like you said what's the domino effect of that decision and what does it do to the other chapters sometimes i've written the book according to the outline and it's during the editing process that i realize hmm there's something not working i think i've got to move this or or remove this or add this in and then i probably won't go back and re-edit the plot um because i've got I've got the story to work with. I've got the whole manuscript to work with, so it doesn't make sense to go and adjust the plot to um, to then rework the manuscript because I'm already doing that. It, it, it's for me that would be a waste of time. So it, it really depends when I make the decision to shift a little. And if it's the ending, then it, it doesn't matter. I don't need to change the plot, you know, because it's at the end. So who cares? Sure, sure. <laughs> so, um, yeah, d- I, I'm always fascinated by the beginnings of a story because mm-hmm. at, at at one moment in time never coming home does not exist in <laughs> any form or fashion it just it it doesn't exist and then either you start thinking about a character and and then you know this you, you kind of start following this character in your mind and and wondering what kind of trouble you can put her in uh or or maybe you've uh, read a news article and it starts the what if game playing in your mind, and then you you cast that what if game with with characters that you know just appear and you know whatever those elements are that begin to come together. Then 
never coming home does exist. And it's your job as the writer to kind of dig that story out and, 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 you know, pull it out of the ground and polish it up. And, you know, but, but it's sort of this, this magical moment of creation where this story is just born and just out of nothing. Um, Mm -hmm. What usually is that first moment of inspiration for you? So never coming home was an anomaly because typically it's, as you mentioned, it's, it's a news article, something I've read, something I've heard on the radio, um, generally from the news, except for the neighbors, actually, that was, that was my first suspense novel, uh, where people move in next door. And that came from me standing at the bay window, looking outside with two houses going up for sale on our courtyard in really quick succession. And me thinking, hmm, I wonder who's going to move in. Ooh, how complicated could this be? And it going, what if? Going from there. But with, with I was, I was come- hoping you were going to say that there was a murder in your neighborhood. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, 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 no. Thankfully not. Very quiet. Thankfully very not. quiet in the burbs where I live. No, no. Um, but uh, no, that would be scary. I write crime Good. fiction. I don't want to live it. Thank you. Exactly. <laughs> you write it so we don't have to live it, right? Exactly. Yes. <laughs> I scare myself with my books and that's fine. Um, but Never Coming Home was actually very much character driven. So I love movies and TV shows where you root for the bad guy or woman knowing really that you shouldn't. And you start asking yourself, hang on a minute, why am I rooting for the bad guy or woman? I really shouldn't be, but I can't help myself. There's just something about this character that means I'm invested in them, even though they're doing really bad stuff. I almost want them to get away with it. In fact, I do want them to get away with it. So (laughs) that was that was the genesis for Never Coming Home. I was thinking about these characters and I thought that feels like a really interesting challenge to write a character where I have to get the buy-in from the reader that they want to be in the bad person's head for the entire duration of a book and go on that journey with them. And there are two ways of doing that, really. Either you can make the character where people love to hate him or her. So I think of Kara Ruder's Best Day Ever with one of the most glorious villains Paul who has decided it's going to be the best day ever because he's going to kill his wife and you're in his mindset and he's just so awful you just love to hate the guy and you go along for the ride because you want to see his downfall and I'm not I'm not going to tell listeners if there is one or not I'm not telling you'll have to get the book and read it it's a great book and then another way of doing that is to get the router the, the router to get the reader to actually <laughs> like the character so hate to love him rather than love to hate him or her but him in the in terms of never coming home and I chose that second route so it was very deliberate Lucas hires a hitman to get rid of his very very wealthy but equally annoying wife it hires a hitman on the dark web it's a despicable act it's terrible he has his wife murdered and yet I gave him a couple of techniques I used, I hope, so that not every every reader will like him, but I hope the vast majority of writers will like him because he's funny, or I think he's funny. Depends if you like my sense of humor or not. But I thought he was really, really fun to write because if you can disregard the fact that he hired a hitman on the dark web to get rid of his wife, 
is actually really fun to hang out with. You'd actually probably enjoy going down the pub and having a drink with him because he's he's funny and charming um, and he hides his true self really well. <laughs> um, plus, I gave him a dog. So, I mean, he likes dogs. Come on. You know, how can you not like the guy if he, if he has this stray dog, uh, which his wife wanted to have taken away by animal control? Come on. She's worse than him, surely. So... <laughs> So there's little techniques like that that I use that I hope he will be endearing. And also what I work very, very hard on is for readers to understand why Lucas and how Lucas becomes or became who he is at the beginning of the book. So his story, his backstory is unraveled slowly. So so people can hopefully, if not agree with what he's done, understand it doesn't make it right but they see where he's coming from so he was he was a really really interesting character to write and my really my first book that was character driven rather than news article or a what if scenario so you you mentioned that you really wanted this to be a character that that people couldn't help but loving yes couldn't help but love even though he at the at the core of the story he's really doing a a despicable thing yes um is is it does it come down to degrees of despicable do do you love him because you hate her more um (laughs) (laughs) you know what i mean like i do when when you start kind of building out and and well and let me ask it this way um do you start building out these character traits as part of your uh, outlining process as part of your plotting do you start thinking of you know what what can I bring out in this character that's going to make him a likable believable character even though none of us would would say that we like what he's doing yes. um, yeah so you know kind of what is the the planning process for building those characters it it really was a question of okay so if I'm going to spend, if I'm going to spend as the writer the entire duration of the novel writing from the bad guy's perspective, I have to want to be in his perspective because if I don't want to be in it, chances are the reader won't either. So I was really, really conscious of, okay, what can I do to make him relatable, likable, and to have readers go along for the ride? So I spent an awful lot of time thinking about him, but Lucas, actually, he was very gracious in the sense that his character, his voice came very, very early on in the process. Already from chapter one, I had a good handle on his sense of humour and he's he's wry, he's witty, he's sarcastic. And there's this inner monologue. You get basically the reader gets unfiltered access into the mind of a killer, but who also happens to be funny, <laughs> which, which was which was fun to do. And I also gave him... I gave my antagonist, Lucas, an antagonist. So there's somebody in the book who's worse than him, which I think is was important. And we also, with my editor, we thought a lot about, about Michelle, about Lucas's wife, and made her perhaps not the nicest person. So when people are thinking, oh, well, yeah, he had a murdered. Well, pff, I might have too. <laughs> you know, <laughs> not seriously, obviously, but, but kind of empathy. Oh, yeah, she really is annoying. But of course... The reader gets Lucas's view of the world because the entire book is is from his perspective. So he they also receive his interpretation of 
how Michelle is and what she does and what she's like and her kind of personality. So you also have to take that with a little bit of a, well, is he is she really that bad? Is he telling is he really telling the truth? Or he wants her money. So of course she's gonna say she's despicable, you know. So right. so there's a bit of um a bit of playing in that as well. It it really was a fun book to write. Lucas was a fun character and I'd never written, that's not true, I had written from the the bad person's point of view in You Will Remember Me, but the character wasn't funny. She was, she, they, I can't go too much away who it was, mm-hmm. um, was seriously messed up. And honestly, I wouldn't have wanted to write an entire book from their point of view, but from Lucas, I would happily write another one because he because he made me laugh so much. And I think because I wrote this one during the pandemic and actually my mum also passed away in in 2020 and I couldn't get to Switzerland to to say goodbye because of the pandemic. It was just horrible. It was just it was just horrible. Oh, I'm sorry. Thank you. But every day every day when I got up and I knew that I was going to disappear into never coming home, it gave me a place where I could wreak some havoc safely where nobody gets hurt. Um, and where I could laugh because Lucas made me laugh and that was that's why I think some people have been a bit surprised by never coming home because it's a lot funnier than my other books it's dark of course I mean the guy hires a hitman to kill his wife so of course it is you know it is dark we're dealing with dark themes but he's funny and when I wrote it it probably came out funnier than it might have a few years before because that was what I needed because everything else seemed so bleak and desperate and the, there's there's something about dark humor that um, that can disarm a situation. Uh, yes, it's really, uh, and, and you know, this is a conversation for for people trained in psychology, and I am definitely not that person. But um, there's something interesting that happens that that uh, a a dark story that that makes us nervously laugh at um, can really take the power out of kind of these big dark things that are going yes. on in, in the world that and it really kind of steals the the power from those big it things. It's really it's really odd. Um mm-hmm. but but fascinating at the same mm-hmm. time. Hundred percent agree. Yeah. Um you mentioned that uh that a lot of this came out of conversations that you had with your editor. Um mm-hmm. when you when you first start publishing, you don't have the benefit of working with an editor from the beginning because uh, most of the time you know you're working on a manuscript that that you are the only person in the world that that knows anything about you know you and a a handful of family members Uh, and then you know when when you uh, get an agent and and a publisher and then that book comes out uh, to the rest of the world it most of the work has been done by you and you alone Mm -hmm. Uh, but then when when you've signed on to a publisher and you have a contract, then that that process changes a little bit, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, and and there are other people involved in the process from the beginning. Um, could you talk a little bit about what the difference in that working relationship is from uh, the the newbie author who is doing this all on her own and then bringing the finished product to someone, you know, that then will help you kind of whip it into shape and and publish it as opposed to what the process is like now when you have an editor and there are other people involved in the process from the beginning. The, you know what? The thing that surprised me the most 
was when I got my first two book deal with with HarperCollins. So that was for The Neighbours and What Became Her Secret Son. So The Neighbours was a book that I'd worked on for a while. I'd edited it. I'd had beta readers read it. I hadn't hired a freelance editor, but I'd had my agent had read through it. So a lot of people, aside from my agent, who are not in the publishing industry had read it and had commented and given me feedback and it was it was polished and polished and repolished and deconstructed and put together and polished again um and so when my publisher said we want to give you a two book deal the first one is the neighbors and the second one will be whatever it is that we decide together that it will be I was panicking a little bit, um, but then we agreed on the concept for Her Secret Son that came together relatively quickly. And I wrote the manuscript and I called my editor and I said, I am incredibly nervous to send you this manuscript. And she asked why, and I said, because nobody else has seen it. <laughs> Nobody's, you're the only person who has seen this book and I'm, and I'm, I'm terrified. And she said, okay, two things. First of all, we gave you a two book deal because we know you can write. If we didn't think you could write, we wouldn't have bought The Neighbours. So right. relax on that one already, which was, okay, okay, great, but I'm still nervous. And then she said, don't forget that I don't expect her secret son, the first version I see, to be as polished as the first version of The Neighbours that I saw. And that really gave me pause because when you're trying to find an agent and then when an agent is is submitting your manuscript, it's the most, you know, the most highly polished product you can possibly provide. Right. But right. then once you're in, once you have a publisher and stay with the same publishing house, it changes a little because they don't expect it to be to that level, which, which, messed me up a little bit to be honest it was oh uh hmm. and it did it did help but I'm I'm still not the kind of person who will who will hand something in I've only ever done it once when I handed in you will remember me I called my editor and I said I know there are problems with it I like the story but I am I there's just something that's not right. It's not clicking and I can't see what it is. And can you please help me? Which she did. And I love the love the end product. Um, she, there was a lot of editing on that one. But with Never Coming Home and the one for, for next year, well, all of them actually, uh, bar that one, I always try, even with Never Coming, with um, You Will Remember Me, I really do the best I can to give them the, the the most possible product that I that I possibly possibly can because that's that's just who I am. That's just that's how I work. That's how I'm wired. Uh, I, I won't send something in if I if I feel that it's three quarters of a job. Yeah. Never coming home is uh, I think it's one of my well I know it's one of my favorite books that I've read um, so far this year that I have oh, so much you. that you know it's. It's odd to say that you have so much fun um, with a book that that uh, revolves around murder and especially <laughs> murder for hire. Um, <Yes>. But 
this, this book is so much fun and i know people are going to love it um it it really scratches just a number of itches that uh, that i promise uh people out there you may not even know that you have this itch but when you start <laughs> reading this book i promise you you're going to love it um uh, Hannah, we're, we're going to put links to it uh, in the show notes where you can grab it in audiobook or, uh, you know, or physical paper if you want to hold that. Um, but how do you have you listened to any of the audiobook yet? Um, no, I've only heard a snippet, uh, a very, very maybe a 40 second clip of the first chapter. And I'm so excited to listen because the narrator, Alex Wyndham, he narrated Nate's chapters in The Neighbours, he narrated all of her secret son, and he narrated um, the man on the beach's chapters in You Will Remember Me. So he's kind of my my go-to guy. <laughs> and I was so, we had a Zoom conversation actually, um, we, we touched base by a Zoom just to chat about the book and the characters and whatnot. And I, I cannot wait, I honestly cannot wait to hear what he's done with the different characters because his, his voice acting skills are just insane he's also incidentally if anyone out there watches yellow jackets um, the hit uh, crave i think it was tv series that uh, was out late last year uh, with the the all female football team that crashes in the the uh, canadian wilderness and they have to survive for, i think 18 months or however long it is out there um he plays a role in that he's the detective in the the present timeline the detective kevin he plays an american detective he's actually uh, a brit so he he does both voice acting and uh, on camera and the the voices he does honest to goodness sometimes i'm listening and i'm thinking hold on is that actually still him or did they get somebody else because he has such a range it's and different accents and i cannot wait so I know when I when I wrote it, um, I, I already thought, OK, he, he has to narrate this. So I was already hearing him in my head how he would narrate it. And it was it was already making me laugh. So I, I know there are some authors who don't don't listen to their audiobooks because it just it they find it's uncomfortable. It's just it weirds them out because it's their work and then they spot the flaws. But I approach it from a slightly different angle. When I listen to my audiobooks, I see them very much as not my work anymore. It's the performance that I'm listening to, not yeah. not the actual words that I wrote. And on the on the other side, yes, it's it's educational um, because I will pick up on things maybe that I repeat too often, phrases and stuff. I think, oh, you said you said that particular thing once too many. Don't do that in the next book. And I have a running list. I have a, a hit list uh, of expressions um, or words that I overuse in my manuscripts, and then I'll add it to that and, and do a search in the new, latest manuscript and, and take them out. So it's it's really helpful too. But I, I I cannot wait to hear what Alex has done with it. I just think he's going to be fantastic. Yeah, me as well. It is one of my most anticipated audiobook releases. And oh, we're, well. we're, we're recording this a couple of weeks before the book uh, drops. And when you're hearing this, the book is already out. But but we're recording this uh, in the past, if you will. And and the audiobook isn't quite ready yet. And I'm, I'm so, um, I, you know, kind of chomping at the bits because yes. I love this book so much. And I, I just know that the audiobook performance is going to be just over the top and i can't wait to, to yes so, <laughs> same I can't yeah. wait. 
<laughs> so we'll put links where where people can go grab the audiobook as well if that's the way you you prefer to consume books um but you know whatever format you choose this will not be a disappointment um hannah always a pleasure to to catch up um tell people where they can find you online if if they want to dig into all of the great stuff that you do of course with pleasure so my website is hannahmarymckinnon.com that's also my instagram and facebook and on twitter i'm hannah m mckinnon and of course people can find me on first chapter fun both on facebook and instagram as well excellent thank you so much uh hannah for coming on and 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 tell hank hi for me if you will Oh, I will with pleasure. Yes. And thank you so much again for having me back. I think this is round three. Oh, there's something like that. Yeah. We're just, we're just going to have a standing once a year. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds good to me. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks, Hannah.